Well, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it Living Worthy of the Gospel. For those of you that are new, we are presently in a series on the Philippians. We're about five or six weeks in now, I believe. We've covered some serious ground at the start of chapter 1. In the opening two verses, we see Paul greeting them with really what is a pregnant prelude as he starts to detail to them where he's going to be going in the rest of the book. In verses 3 through 11, Paul gives thanks for them and prays for them. He really shares his heart with them as a, as a church pastor. And then from verse 12 through to 26, he lets them know about how his imprisonment is serving to see the gospel advance. Not only amongst the Roman guard and the imperial guard and Caesar's household, but also it's giving boldness to the Christians in Rome. He's basically saying, you know, I'm in prison, but the dudes around me are sharing the gospel all the more boldly. And so I don't want you as a local church to worry about me being in prison because I'm good and the gospel's going forward and to live as Christ and to die as gain. So this is good stuff. The gospel's going forward. Well, from verse 27, his tone of affection doesn't change, but his gaze definitely does. Because prior to this moment, he's primarily been talking about kind of himself trying to comfort them and encourage them through his example. And now his gaze is going to go on to them about how he wants them to apply all this stuff, how he wants them to live and respond to the glorious gospel that they've been recipients of. And so let's read together from verse 27 to the end of verse 30. Only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I'm not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that this is the highlight of the service. Not what now is to come, but what just took place as we hear your word being proclaimed. Your words where nothing is out of place. Nothing is overstated or understated. Everything is accurate and clear. And Holy Spirit, would you take this clarity today as we sit under your word? Would you take this clarity and and make it alive in our hearts? Give us eyes to behold the glories of what Paul is saying here. Oh Lord, help us see that 2,000 years on, this applies to us. Our names are here. Our faces are seen here. Would it encourage us and equip us and comfort us and provoke us? Lord, have your way. Amen. Ian Murray, the well-known author and historian, when recently interviewed about preaching, simply said this. He said, The preacher has got to find the emotion of the text. He was making the point that effective preaching, if you're going to preach 
effectively, the preacher needs to understand that they must not only familiarize themselves with the text and rightly divide the word of truth, they must also discern the emotion of the text. They must understand the tone. So is this to bring comfort? Is it to provoke? Is it to encourage? Is this caring for those in suffering? Is it moving people on? You have to understand the emotion of the text. Well, as a preacher, I am pleased that to find the emotion in this text is not a difficult task. Because it is without doubt that in this first word, there is bucket loads of emotion. And the word is only. Alec Motier says, The force of this word only is tremendous. As if Paul had said, This one thing and this only... Nothing else must distract or excuse them from this great objective. It must be their all-embracing occupation, whether Paul was there or not. The force of this word only is tremendous. What Paul is saying is, you know what, whether I come and see you, which is my hope and expectation, I think it's going to be better for you if I do, or whether I never make it to you, whether my life ends here in Rome in prison, I want you to get this. This is the only thing that really matters to me. As a guy who loves you, as a guy who cares for you, this is what I want you to see. Only this matters. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so after Paul greets them at the start of this book, and then shares his heart with them and his love for them and his affection for them and gives reasons why and prays for them and then comforts them through his own example and encourages them with really how he's going in prison and how he's pleased because the gospel's gone forward. In this chapter and in this text, which really takes us from chapter 1, verse 27 through to chapter 2, verse 18, we have here a section in which Paul looks into the Philippian eyes and starts to exhort them and care for them in the context of how they must respond to the gospel. See, Paul is not talking anymore about their position in the gospel. He's talking about their practice of the gospel. How they're meant to live now as Christians. He's been sharing his example with them to motivate them, but he wants them now to respond and realize, you, you need to follow me. In this. And you know, just like many other chapters, also written by Paul, so Ephesians chapter one verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, this passage is critical and reminds me, every time I come across this type of passage, of episode 3 of The Pacific. Have anybody seen Band of Brothers? I'm slightly obsessed with it. I've only seen it about four times, but I really like it. And then the second series, Pacific, is like equally as good. I think we just watch it as a church because all the men will come out by the end of it going, yes, I am a man. There's just something good about it. It's just so cool. And in chapter three of the Pacific, you meet this guy called John Bassalone. And it's basically following this guy. He's a part of the U.S. Marine Corps. He's been fighting in World War II in the Pacific. He's been fighting in specifically in the Guadalcanal. And John Vassalone is a guy that, because of his heroics in the Guadalcanal, they're going to give him the Medal of Honor. That's an incredible privilege in the United States Marine Corps. Not many people get the Medal of Honor. 
and yet they're going to give John the Medal of Honor. The challenge is with John is he's a philanderer, he's heavily into drink, his lifestyle is not one that would necessarily represent the U.S. Marine Corps very well. And so his captain calls John into his office the day before he gets the model of, model of honor and says this to him. He says, son, this is the highest honor our country can award on a serviceman. And so from now on, try to act like it's yours. His whole premise is we are going to give you the medal of honor for your heroics. So from now on, try to live like it's yours. And we want your life to fall into line with the medal that is around your neck. The prize of what you have done. Well, in so many ways, I think Paul is talking to us about a similar type thing. Now, we have not earned the medal. Jesus Christ has earned the medal for us. But it is now wrapped around our neck, the glorious gospel of Christ. And Paul is saying, now, I want you to live then like it's yours. I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, worthy of the medal that hangs around your neck. And you know, as we study this, and particularly because I'm aware that this, this whole section is going to go from chapter 1, verse 27 through to 2.18, in terms of groundwork, we have to understand that there is a lot of undercurrent of citizenship in what Paul is saying here. And you have to understand that, otherwise it, it really doesn't come alive fully in the way that Paul wants it to. See, this Greek word that doesn't obviously say here, but the Greek word is paletuester. And this word, paletuester, is translated here as live in a manner. But it can also be translated behave as citizens. That's important. So if you've got an ESV Bible, you'll see there's a little star or something by it, and there's a footnote, and it says, oh yes, you can also translate it behave as citizens. Paul is deliberately using this word because he does want to help them see that living in a manner is important. But there's this undercurrent of citizens, of citizenship. And this is something that he's going to come back to time and time again later on in this letter. See, Philippi, by way of background, was a Roman colony. And this Roman colony idea was a title that would be highly prized at this period of time. Colonial status meant that for Philippi, if you were a part of the city of Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. So their names in this local church would have been written in the rolls of Rome. Their legal positions would have been the same as Rome itself. They had the privileges of Rome itself. They were, in effect, a homeland Rome in miniature in Philippi. And they were really proud of it. I mean, just a few months ago, when we went to the Acts 29 conference in Melbourne, one of the things I realized about people in Melbourne, they're really proud that they live in Melbourne. You know, and I hadn't discovered that before until I got there. So you arrive there and they say, oh, hi, who are you? I say, I'm Dave. I'm from Sydney. They go, oh, never mind. And they go, oh, oh, right. And you realize they really love Melbourne. They just think Melbourne is the best place ever. And it was pretty cool, but I was pleased to get on the plane and come back because I like Sydney. But they were really passionate about Melbourne. Well, these guys in Philippi are passionate about being part of Rome. They're passionate. They, they are a part of this wonderful colony. They're proud of it. But therein, specifically for them, lay their problem. Because they were too proud of it. There was the distinct smell of arrogance around them. As they thought that they were something special in effect. Because of their colonial status. 
That's a citizenship is something that Paul is going to come back to later on in the letter because he wants to help them see, I'm pleased that you think it's great to be part of Philippi, but you need to understand that you're primarily citizens of heaven. It's not about where you live. It's about the fact that you've been saved by grace and so heaven is your home. And here's the reason why that's important. Here's the reason why I needed to give you all that groundwork as we press into this passage. It's because I think if you want to know what the big idea of this passage really is, what the burden of Paul's heart really is, what the core, the intended redemptive effect really is on our lives of this passage, it's this, in a sentence. What we have here, I believe, is a call to live out our lives here as citizens of heaven in a way that is worthy of the gospel of God. That's what Paul is exhorting us to. That's what Paul is calling us to. Understanding that we're called to live out our lives here, we must nonetheless understand that we are citizens of heaven. And so we're called to live out our lives here as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you know, this is a call and encouragement that I think we all need to hear at different times, don't we? I mean, we can be tempted, can we not, to think that we have all the time in the world to live for Christ. We'll get onto that when we're older. And then we get older. And we think, I'll get onto that when I'm even older. And you just think, I've got plenty of time. I'll get onto that next year. And then how many times at the end of the year do you have conversations with people and you go, my, this year's gone past quickly. Do you realize we say that every year? Our lives are just going. We're tempted to just think we'll get onto that later. And Paul doesn't want us to do that. He's aware that there is an urgency in this tone. But we can also be tempted, I think, as Christians to think of this place as home, can't we? To think this is it. And we know that maybe when we're old and we die, we're going to be with, with Jesus. But right now, this is home. So it's all about this. Can you be tempted to do that? To make all your decisions purely dependent on what you see? Well, Paul knows that temptation. So he wants to help the Philippians and indeed us see, no, no. Your citizenship is in heaven. So you need to live in a manner worthy here, understanding your citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because heaven is your You know, two points then as we get into this section and then continue it next week and the week after. Two points that I've learned from my friend C.J. Mahaney and I just I cannot improve on the two points. So these are his two points in effect. And here's the first. Number one, our heavenly citizenship. As we understand what this text is really about, number one, we have to see then our heavenly citizenship. See, the gospel, without doubt, has been Paul's central passion right the way from the start of this letter, hasn't it? That's the thing he's always gone on about. So verse 5, Paul thanks the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel with him. And verse 7, he continues in that same vein. He, he wants to thank them for their defense and confirmation of the gospel with him. In verse 12, he describes his imprisonment and the effect of his imprisonment that the gospel is going forward. And in verse 18, he continues to that point, explaining that even though I'm in prison, the gospel is going forward through the church in Rome, so I'm pleased to live as Christ, to die as gain. The gospel is going forward. This is good. Paul has been banging the nail of the gospel if we've been listening every, almost every sentence. And so when we get to verse 27 
And when we encounter this exhortation of let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, it's really important that we understand what he is saying and what he isn't saying. Otherwise, we could be in a world of hurt really quickly. And I mean, this for me, in all honesty, this is like pastoral danger ground. I mean, it's so important that we understand the implications, the imperatives of what he's saying. But we must also understand exactly what he is saying and what he's not saying. See, what he isn't saying is that we need to start living in a way whereby we will be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's not what he's saying. He's not trying to communicate to them and indeed us that we are called to earn our salvation through our obedience and good works. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I want you to live now in a way whereby you become worthy. You become distinctly worthy. You earn this salvation that you've received. And it's so important that we understand that. Because if we get that wrong right from the start, this church will become a group of legalists within weeks. And we must always guard against legalism. Legalism will rob our joy. It will rob our peace. It will rob our faith. And I know it because I've lived it. For years of my life, I was a legalist. And so I grew up believing that Jesus Christ died for my sin, but then as soon as I kind of turned my back, I felt as if I was earning my salvation. And so I realized that you had to be passionate about preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel with people. So if I had a good week doing that, my assumption was Jesus and God were really pleased with me. They thought I was great. I could sit on the front row worshipping Jesus because this is all good. I've lived a good life. I must be really saved this week. And then a the week after, if I hadn't done well in that, if I, if I hadn't lived well for him, I hadn't read my Bible, I hadn't prayed, I hadn't reached out once, if I'd actually caught the other, I'd kind of been a negative effect for the gospel. I'm sitting at the back, assuming I must be kind of less saved this week. I mean, I've earned nothing this week. See, I was living as a legalist. I was living functionally as if the cross was not enough by itself. It was the cross plus me. And then, cross plus me, I'll be in or I'll be not in. It's a horrible way to live. It robs your joy. It robs your peace. Because constantly you feel like you're failing more than you're gaining. And so you live feeling that constantly God must be disappointed with you. Paul is not encouraging that legalism. He's not remotely saying that we are earning our salvation. He's not remotely saying that we are called to live in a way whereby we we live worthily of the gospel in an earning way. No, Paul himself, one of the central messages of everything he says is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's his constant thing that he's trying to communicate to whoever will listen to him. That you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way. Nothing in our hands do we bring. Simply to the cross we must cling. It's completely a work of grace. Jesus Christ alone is enough. What he achieved on the cross in our place is enough. See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what I want you to know. Jesus Christ alone is enough for your salvation. And it's actually all that there is as well. Your works do not contribute anything. You may think, but my good works are good. Not before the Lord. They're like a filthy rag. Oh, yes. 
But Jesus Christ has done it all for you. That's the point. God made us. He made us to worship Him and find our identity and purpose and joy in Him. We rejected Him. We started to look around the world and think, this looks good, I'm just going to do this. That's by nature what sin is. And yet Jesus Christ in His grace pursued us, even unto death at a cross. And then through Him made a way that whereby we put our faith in Him, we're reconciled to Him. And reconciled in full. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are fully forgiven of our sins. Through Jesus Christ alone, we are fully justified, fully redeemed, fully adopted into the family of God, fully assuming a citizenship in heaven. Just through faith. It's not about your works. It's about His work. It's about what He has done. The Apostle Paul is not trying to cultivate here legalism. What he's trying to encourage them and point to them is that is in light of the calling that they've received, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has saved them, in light of the truth that they are forgiven and they are redeemed and they are justified and that heaven is their home, in light of all those things, would you now start living then in a manner worthy of the gospel that you've received? That medal that Jesus Christ has earned for you, start living in a manner worthy of it, the prize that it is to you. You don't earn it, but you do exhibit it. John Piper says it this way, I think, wonderfully. He says, It is by grace we are saved through faith. Not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. But the heart that is full of faith will overflow in attitudes and actions very different from those which flow from unbelief. Therefore, our deeds will testify truly to the genuineness or absence of faith. But... We must understand that our deeds never earn our salvation. For our deeds do not earn, they exhibit our salvation. Our deeds are not the merit of our righteousness, they are the mark of our new life in Christ. And our deeds are not sufficient to deserve God's favor, but they do demonstrate our faith. For we must always keep this distinction clear in our minds regarding our attitudes and our actions. Listen, they do not earn they exhibit. They do not merit, they mark. And they do not deserve. They simply demonstrate. That's brilliant. And that is the truth of the glorious gospel. And the way we live our lives, we are never earning or marking or deserving of our salvation. But we're called to live in such a way whereby we do exhibit and mark and demonstrate our salvation. As one scholar said, we simply become human illustrations of the power of the gospel. And that's exactly right. We model it. We take it out. We show people the effect that the gospel has on our lives. David Dixon then says this, one of my favorite quotes of all time. He says, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from both. And having betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, I have in him the sweet peace. My friends, that's the glories of salvation. It's understanding that I take all my good deeds and all my bad deeds, all the things that I perceive I've done well in, and all the things where I understand I've done badly in, and I cast them in a heap before the Lord Jesus Christ, and I flee to the cross, and in him I find a sweet peace. 
that salvation. We don't smuggle in then our works. We understand it's all His works. So point one then, our heavenly citizenship. We have to understand who He's communicating to here. He's not talking in any sense about something we need to do to earn our salvation. But He is, number two, talking about our earthly reality. Again, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. His whole premise now is going to be to communicate to us that as we are citizens then of heaven, we need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ that we've received. And he starts to unpack that for us then, which he unpacks all the way to verse 18. But he starts to unpack it here in this text with two things, two applications of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here's the first. Number one, contending for the gospel as one. This is so wonderful the way he says this. Verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. What does he want to hear? This is what he wants to hear. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what Paul is doing here is appealing to the Philippian church to stand together, unified in the gospel, contending for the gospel as one, even in the face of opposition. And the imagery he's using here, I just think is great, because it's the imagery of a Roman battlefield. See, Philippi, as I said before, was a Roman colony. And so they knew exactly what the Roman army looked like. They would be very aware of what Romans do when they go into battle. And what he's doing, Paul here is talking to them about what that would look like in a Roman context in a battlefield as the army moves as one. And so I would have loved to have been hit there as he read this out because instantly their mind would have gone to, oh, I get that. I, I see what he's talking about. And so when he calls them then to stand firm and be of one mind, instantly they have this image of a Roman battalion. If you've ever seen the film Gladiator, another great film, the film Gladiator, and at one point all of the Romans are standing together and they're standing there with their shields. And the shields are all in a long line. And then they start to put shields over their head and they just stand firm and nothing can penetrate these shields because this army has learnt to gather and stand as one, standing side by side so even as opposition is coming, nothing can penetrate this opposition because this army stands as one. But he also then calls them, doesn't he, to strive side by side. And again, they would know what this looks like in a Roman battalion context. They understood that Roman battalions standing there with their shields on their front and on their heads could hold the line. But when they're all gathered together, they can start to move that line forward. They can start to advance the line. They can start to strive side by side moving forward. They not only stand firm, but they start to strive forward and move forward together. Well, I would love to have been there then as they read this out. Because this is the moment for me where Paul becomes like Maximilian, whatever it was, on the gladiator. I could just see him on a horse gathering around them and saying, Right, dudes, this is the way it's going to be. I want you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you know what that means? It means standing firm as one. Standing in unity, being of one spirit, one mind. Hold the line of the gospel. And then when you stand together in unity, start advancing the gospel, striving forward, 
side by side. And this is one of those great verses, once again, where I think we realize and understand, if we're perceptive, why being a part, a clear part of a local church is so important. Imagine the Roman just running off by himself. I've got my shield, I'm fine. Okay, bye, I'm standing. You just think, what? The Bible doesn't know anything of just this solitary religion. Roman, you know, just army, just going maverick for Jesus. It doesn't know that. It talks about people coming together and standing together in unity, holding the line of the gospel and then moving the line of the gospel in gospel community. I love then Paul's imagery here. And for the Philippian church, this is an important image and an important point. Because as the letter progresses, what you realize is they're not at unity. Not all of them. Some of them are really struggling with this. In fact, actually, in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, Paul even calls two people out on it. Imagine that. Your name's in the Bible forever as the dudes that are arguing in Philippi. You know, you're going to get to heaven, and you're like, yeah, that was me. I'm sorry. You know, it's, just, it's awkward. To Paul, this is an important issue. And he's aware it's not, you, it's not just you two guys. We'll see in chapter 2, there's others of you. You're sowing in a disunity. There's some rivalry. There's some conceit. Come on, guys. If we're going to contend for the gospel, we have to stand as one. We have to stand together. And yet, in truth, I think this is something that not only the Philippian church needs to hear, it's something that every church needs to hear, isn't it? I mean, I love this church, but you are such a group of sinners, and you are led by a sinner. Have you noticed that? You know what happens? You know, and you're all smiling at me because you know, yes, I know. You should be in our life group. I know, I've got my own. You know, it's just, it, the reality is we bring indwelling sin into family relationship, do we not? And so we come in and we just assume that the church is the best thing ever. This church is like heaven. Until we've been in it six months and then we go, man, I, I don't know, what's, what's the problem with this church? No, it's the same church. It's just you started getting to know people. And they've got to know you as well, um, which, is, which is interesting. You know, indwelling sin means that church life and relationships can be difficult, which is the very reason why Paul says to the Ephesians, eagerly maintain the unity. He's saying, you're going to have to work at this, guys. Because everybody can be humble when you're by yourself. As soon as you get with other people, that humility gets tested. Your ability to stand together starts to get tested. Every church needs to understand the importance of unity and standing together. It is so easy in any church context to allow secondary issues to become, at least in people's perceived mind, primary issues. And then all of a sudden, disunity comes. So instead of gathering around the gospel, we start to gather around homeschooling or organic food or immunization or an idea of sports or a certain emphasis on prayer or whatever it be. All good things, all fine things, whatever you like. But they will not be the thing that we build around in this local church. We're going to build around the gospel. And then we're going to give room where the, where the gospel is not clear on application to let people be diverse. Because that's what it means to be diversified within unity. But if we're going to be full of unity, we must stand together side by side with our shields by our sides, linking arms as one. Otherwise, this church will never make it. Paul knows that. I know that. We must be sobered. I think Paul is trying to sober us. You know, folks, we have an enemy who is real, who roars around like a lion, seeking to devour a local church. I'm so excited with what God is doing in this church. I 
absolutely thrilled. I'm so excited for our futures. Different things, you know, generally as a leader, things get foggy as I consider the future. But now and again, the fog lifts and you think, I think that's the way the Lord's taking us. This sounds great. But if I perceive correctly how I think the Lord will use this local church, what I want to tell you is this, we will be opposed by the evil one. And one of the main things he will seek to do is ram disunity into our midst by allowing secondary issues to appear primary. This is a deal breaker. If they don't agree with you on this point, leave. In fact, if they won't eat that can, like you eat that can, are they a Christian? Sounds far-fetched. But actually, I've known churches to actually disagree on minor things as if they become huge things. It's the evil one that works. We must not allow that. This is army mentality. I think so many Christians, I've not, this isn't even on my notes, but I'm just going to tell you this anyway. I think so many Christians perceive that our world is at peacetime. It is not. Read the Bible. As Christians, we're at war. This isn't peacetime. This is wartime. We're being opposed by the evil one, which is why we need to stand together, why we need to allow the armor of God to be put on us, because we're at war. We need to stand together. And Paul realizes that. And so he urges them and calls them, only this, whether I come back to you or not, only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? It means contending for the gospel as one. Church, stand together. Stand as one. Don't get distracted with things. Stand together in the gospel. Stand together as one. And also, number two, don't fear your gospel opponents. What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the calling? Well, it means contending for the gospel as one, but it also means not fearing our gospel opponents. Look with me at verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. You know, that's a huge statement. And one that I'd have to say as I read it this week was, was just provoked by and challenged by because it is so hard to put yourself in the situation that Paul is describing the Philippians are in. Because they are being opposed for their faith dramatically. If we were the church at Philippi, Opposition for the gospel was rife, was real, and was significant. And so this opposition of the gospel, because it was so significant and so real, it would have been so easy for them to be intimidated by those that opposed them. See, Philippi was a Roman colony, and so by very nature, they had some, a lot of benefits to that, but by very nature, they had to then show an allegiance as a city to Caesar. And the whole premise is the emperor is king and lord. And these guys become Christians. And they are certainly still respectful for Caesar and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But their whole premise is he's not lord at all. Jesus Christ, the one that you killed, he's the lord. He's the true king. He's the one to whom every knee must bow. And as they're preaching that, that's not a popular message. As they're preaching that, people are opposing that. How dare you say that in our city? How dare you suggest that somebody else is king and that Rome isn't what it's all about? And this was an opposition, a very real opposition, that Paul himself knew only so well. When the church started, 
second person that was saved. Sorry, the third person who was saved. The Philippian jailer. How did he get saved? Because Paul was in prison. Because they were beating him up. They were opposing him as he stood firm in his message. In verse 30 then, Paul says this. He says, And you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He's saying, you remember when I was with you when the church started it up? <laughs> because I do. I remember getting beaten up for the faith. I remember the way they opposed you. And I'm still being opposed. I'm in a prison in Rome. I'm still being opposed as I take the gospel forward. I, Philippi, I know what you're experiencing. I feel for you because I'm experiencing exactly the same thing. And yet, Philippi, I want you to stand firm and not fear the opposition that you're facing. Do not be intimidated and then just run into the corner. You know, this Greek word actually has its roots in in this idea of horses being so startled that they just run away. And his whole premise is, Philip, I don't do this. I know you're facing opposition. I know you're being persecuted for your faith. But stand as one in unity for the gospel and strive side by side for the gospel and do not be intimidated by your opponents. Be fearful of those that are opposing you in the gospel. And in the second half of verse 28, he begins to then explain to them why that's so important. He says this. He says, I'm not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For their courage, according to Paul, would be a sign. It would be something that would be indicative. It would be revealing. It would be a pointer. A sign of what? Well, a sign of, of their opponent's destruction. See, as they're sharing the gospel with people and living for Jesus Christ, there's no doubt that some would be getting saved. That's how the church is growing. Paul's aware that they're not all going to get saved. Some are going to oppose you and they're going to keep opposing you and you're going to share the gospel with them but they're going to continue to oppose you. And as they do that, it will be a sign to them in some mysterious way of their destruction because in the same way they oppose you and reject you, one day they will be opposed and rejected by God the Father himself. There will be an eternal opposition to them and it will be a sign to them and as you live for Christ of what they're going to receive on that last day. But more than that, it's also a sign of your own salvation. A sign of your assurance. A sign of your confirmation that you're really a Christian. I mean, I love this because this is the most unexpected place to find assurance you've ever come across in your life. I would not have assumed, actually prior to reading this text, that the way I share the gospel with people and the opposition I may face is a sure sign that I'm a Christian. That's not one that we usually think of as Christians, is it? And that's what I believe Paul is saying. It will be a sign to you of assurance. It will be a sign to you of salvation. Because the very fact that you're suffering and that God is allowing you to suffer is an expression of his grace to you. For he's giving you the privilege of suffering for the gospel just like Jesus Christ did himself. He's counting you as a brother, an heir. He's giving you the privilege and joy of suffering like he did. For blessed is the one who is persecuted. He's giving you that joy and that privilege of being persecuted just like he was. But more than that, there will also be Abba Father moments for you. You know, I'd have to say as I thought about this this week, this is, this is true. 
You know when those moments when you do pluck up the courage to share the gospel with somebody, and maybe it goes well, maybe it goes badly, but after you've experienced that moment and you think, I did it! I actually managed to get my tongue out my mouth and actually share the gospel with somebody. My tongue felt about three foot long, but actually I did communicate the gospel to somebody. And you pull away and you think, yes, I actually did it! What is that? I don't think it's just your excitement. I think that is the cry that comes from the Holy Spirit of Abba, Father. Yes, you did. He gave you the grace to do it. That's why you did it. He gave you boldness and courage in that very moment. That very moment was an expression of His grace to you. And that's why you feel the zeal in your heart because in that very moment, you have received an assurance. She shared the gospel and faced that opposition. In verse 29 then, he explains that even some more, explaining to them how it is that they are indeed going to pluck up the courage to stand firm against this opposition. He says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. How are they going to do it? How are we going to do it? How is anybody going to manage to pluck up the courage to stand firm in the gospel when you know you're being opposed? Well, according to Paul, we're going to be able to do it through the grace of God and the grace of God alone. Because he identifies in this verse the Christian as one who has been graciously granted two things. Number one, the grace to believe. For the very reason you're here is because before the foundation of the earth, he chose you. He gave you grace to believe. At the right time, He opened your eyes. He gave you the gift of faith and you responded to Jesus Christ as your Savior. That was a means of His grace. And in the same way He granted you grace to believe, He will grant you grace to suffer. Grace to sustain you. Grace of an awareness that you're not alone. That as you stand firm in the gospel, you don't stand by yourself. You stand with your brothers, sisters around you with the shield of faith in front of you all, standing in the gospel, but there is something within you where you will experience the grace of sustenance. You will know that I belong. This is real in my life. It's the exhilaration of mission. As the Holy Spirit cries within, you are in. And the only reason why you managed to do it is because the same one that started your salvation story and gave you the grace to believe is sustaining you even in your mission. It's granted you the grace to believe, but also the grace to suffer. It's a beautiful picture of his amazing grace. You know, it can be hard to relate, I think, to us here in Sydney, right? I mean, if we lived in North Korea, Syria, or Iraq, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and this goes on, we'd probably be more astute to what Paul is really saying. Now, it's estimated that there are 100 people a month around our world that die for the faith of Christianity. Every month. Tortured, abused, martyred for the faith, minimum. If we were living in one of those countries, we'd probably be paying particular attention because we're aware, yeah, you know what? As soon as the singing stops today, I've got to go out there and I may die before I get to the car. But just because it is hard to relate doesn't mean, I think, that we can't relate. Because I think we can. See, Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified 
a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now that was written 2,000 years ago, but I submit to you nothing much has changed. It is still folly to people. When we share the gospel with people and live as Christ, it seems completely weird and completely strange to a culture that looks on. And with that folly, I think, comes, in whatever culture you're in, clear and sustained opposition. And so it's the challenge that the young mum faces. As she attends the playgroup or she goes to the school gate and she seeks to win people's hearts, and she starts to communicate to different friends about Jesus Christ, the fact that God exists and that he made us and he made us for his glory and yet we sinned and rejected that. And one by one she's starting to notice the opposition as friends are leaving her. The phone calls stop. No one seems to want to hang out with her at the school gate anymore. So the opposition that the employee gets when he's going out for drinks at lunchtime with his mates because he wants to win them for Jesus. But the more he's doing that, the more he's aware that they're picking up on the fact that I don't drink because I don't want to get drunk. And they start to think that's really stupid and weird. And as this guy seeks to live for Christ and live in a way that is holiness, as he ensures that he doesn't get drunk, he's trying to win these guys' hearts and he's trying to share the gospel with them, but they're becoming increasingly aggro because they feel judged by the fact just because of the things he won't do. And he's starting to be opposed for living for Christ. It's the opposition a student faces as they stand in college and questions come about, so what do you think about gay marriage? And they explain the biblical worldview and then they're abused for it. How dare you be so intolerant? And they start to stand up for what marriage means, a biblical manhood and womanhood, all things that come out of implications of the gospel. And she or he starts to be abused as inconsistent and arrogant. Who are you to say that Jesus is the only one? It is hard to fully relate to what they experienced in Philippi. But I think we'd be naive to think that we can't relate. The gospel is folly to people. And as we communicate it, we will be opposed by people. And through that opposition, fear can so easily come, can't it? It can so easily stop it. We're not going to be beaten up for it, but they might think bad of us. So I'm not going to tell them anything. Our opposition is still real. Our fears are still real. Through these challenges, fear can so easily come. But I submit to you, through God's grace, faith can be our story. Because God in His grace assures us that the one who gave you grace to believe will give you grace to suffer. The one who started your story will sustain you in the story. The one who began a good work in you will complete it. And as you seek to live for Jesus Christ in a man worthy of the gospel, as you seek to demonstrate him and exhibit him in your life to other people and clearly communicate the gospel to them, you will never be alone. Because he'll be with you. He'll be giving you grace. And as you exhibit that grace and as you speak of that grace and as you communicate of the glories of the gospel, you will experience what it is to be assured of your salvation. Not because you've earned it, you haven't. But you've experienced it as you've stood for Jesus Christ. And you know in that moment, that was his grace. That was him in my life. Because by myself, I'm a chicken. 
happened with him. I just did that. That was his work in my life. I must be a Christian. I must be saved. My friends, as citizens of heaven, would we be a people who would live out our lives here in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We can never earn it. We don't need to. Jesus Christ has earned our salvations alone. And so it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. End of story. We can never earn our salvation. But we can exhibit that it's taken place in our lives. We can demonstrate it. We can illustrate it to those around us. And would we illustrate it then as a local church? Would we be a people who contend for the gospel as one? Would we not allow any secondary issue to become primary above the gospel on which we unite as a local church? We'll be looking at that more next week and the week after as Paul starts to take us on a tour of what it really means to stand as one. And would we be a people who don't walk in fear of our gospel opponents? Understanding Jesus is with us. He's never going to leave us. So would we stand firm in courage and grace in the gospel? And would we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ that we receive? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so challenging and so provoking and yet so comforting. And Lord, as we hear your word, there is something within us, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that resonates with these words. This is true. Lord, would you give us then the grace to apply these words today? Would we hear your voice through Paul's voice calling us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lord, did you help us? We need your grace to do this. I thank you in advance that your grace is sufficient for us. And so would we take courage and would we live for you? In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen, my friends. We are not going to sing today. We are going to worship in our lives this week as we apply this.